This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is not an invitation to make an investment and should not be construed as advice. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of 91. The value of investments can fall as well as rise and losses may be made. In South Africa, 91 is an authorised financial services provider. Let's continue our series of podcasts on the Chinese New Year, the Chinese New Year of the Ox. And I'm speaking today to Michael Power, strategist for the 91 Investment Institute. And the title of this particular piece is Strong as an Ox, Economic Trends to Watch. China has really just bounced back out of the pandemic, the global health crisis, Michael, uh, as no other country has, I think. Indeed. I mean, it it seems hugely ironic that they were the ones that gave us this this virus, and they're the ones who seem to be benefiting most from it, um, at least in terms of the great race moving forward. I mean, obviously, Vietnam, I think, had a better year than they did, and even Taiwan grew GDP faster than China did. But but basically, it's, uh, you know, China-centered Asia or China itself that is, is recovering fastest. Um, and uh, everyone is having to revise their forecasts as to when the great day that China will overtake the United States will be, and, and they're bringing forward their, their forecast by three or four years. Yes, and they're doing it very well indeed. You say strength is among the Ox's signature characteristics, and the Chinese economy certainly displayed it in 2020. Fourth quarter growth of 6.5% brought the annual GDP increase to 2.3%, which is shooting the lights out compared to others. But apart from GDP and retail sales and exports and imports, what of the economic characteristics have caught your eye? Well, I think that the prioritization of getting people back into the factories and thinking about the supply side, which uh, was exactly not what was done in the West, by and large. Uh, in the US, I always felt that the, the priority was to get people back into the tattoo parlors. Yes. Um, and I think that contrast uh, of China making things and, and, and people having ink put into their bodies was just wonderfully stark. And the result is that obviously China had things to offer. I mean, over 90% of the U.S.'s antibiotics are sourced from China, and the PPE, which they obviously were able to supply to all the world almost. Um, they had a very good year. In fact, their trend of a uh, current account surplus declining, which it has been over the last five or six years, uh, reversed. Not dramatically, but it did reverse last year um, as a direct result of, of being able to get up and running quickly and provide people with the things they needed. So I think that the, the, the Chinese do have this supply-side bias, um, but it is the interesting thing about China now is precisely that they're now beginning to shift gear and emphasize the demand side, which is exactly what's going to be probably the stronger of the two drivers over the next decade. It's that emergence of a Chinese middle class and the consumption that comes with it, and that will uh, take us to some extent all by surprise because We've just thought of China in the past of being, you know, made in China, factory of the world. But we've never really, uh, but we should have done, because if we looked at things like luxury goods, we would have seen it. But we've never really focused on on the scale of consumption that is now emerging in China and even uh, in, in China-centered East Asia. 
Do you think, Michael, that they're doing it in order to gain an advantage over the so-called Western economies? Or do you think they really, really genuinely believe it when it it comes to the green wave? And I've spoken to one of your colleagues about the green wave. Do you really believe that China is reforming itself, albeit in a Chinese way? I really believe China is reforming itself, albeit in a Chinese way. I think that Western perspectives trying to look at China and understand at the moment that can't shift from their own uh, reference points, uh, largely end up missing what's going on. Yes, obviously, China is not alone in the world. So it has to take note of what's happening elsewhere. And for instance, the run-in that it's recently had with Australia probably has ended up costing China more than it cost Australia. So they're going to have to learn to give and take But the essential story that's coming out of China now and this new phrase we're starting to hear, dual circulation, uh, is very much uh, made in China. Um, And the philosophy is Chinese and they're playing to their strengths and they're addressing their weaknesses. Increasing average incomes, you say, and, and growing Chinese middle class are crucial to China's dual circulation, which you've already referenced, strategy. A core element of the 14th five-year plan, dual circulation puts more emphasis on domestic consumption to drive growth and reorients production to meet the needs of the Chinese consumer. It's almost as though it's becoming, it wants to become self-sufficient, but also be part of the global system. Well, I think that to some extent, that's what Germany was. I mean, obviously, there are, there are huge differences. But Germany... The Netherlands, uh, where you're sitting right now, always had this idea of of being part of the world, but to some extent having a degree of of self-sufficiency, of running current account surpluses. And so I think that that's exactly what China is doing, although, and I will let's get on to it in a minute, uh, I think they are deliberately going to try and run current account deficits in the not-too-distant future. And that's in part going to be because the consumers are Um, are going to go wild for things like foreign travel and foreign luxury goods and the like. And China's makeup in terms of of what it's all about is going to start shifting. I love going back to that term that uh, was said in uh, around 2000, 2001, where the Chinese factory worker says, we make TVs and Americans watch them. The difference is today is that we make TVs and we watch them and we watch them more than anybody else on the planet. And the fact is that, you know, then they just produced things and didn't really consume them. Now they produce things and they're starting to consume them in vast quantities as well. And it is that shift. I mean, Chinese companies have woken up to discover the world's greatest untapped emerging market. And it's called China. Yes. So they're learning to sell to themselves. I like what you say here in one sentence. It says here, online offerings of healthcare insurance, sporting events, education products, property management and e-museums have also been mentioned by officials. We see exciting opportunities within these areas for investors. And I would have thought you have to have squads of analysts having a look at China because it changes almost every day and the opportunities present themselves almost every day. True. But uh, the key word in that sentence you just read is online. Many of those things are being add-on offerings uh, from existing operators. So, you know, Tencent or Alibaba or whatever, although there has been some pulling back on certain aspects, particularly in the fintech space, um, as a result of the intervention from the Chinese Central Bank and, and, and the regulators. But nevertheless, you really have to follow four or five players to see where they're going next. There may be, and we've seen it with 
a new app that's come out in the last uh, month or so that is caught on called Clubhouse. Something new out there, and there could be new player, and, and you should never rule that out. But the critical words were online, and, and that is it. If you can basically put it online, and increasingly the, the list of things that you can't put online is getting very short, then China's in a, an incredible position. There's what we call uh, the network effect, not just for the companies, but, but for the country. Uh, China's in an incredible position to be able to, to, to power ahead. And, you know, people are basically using that cell phone of theirs in ways that 10 years ago we would not even have begun to imagine. They're also using their five-year plan, the 14th five-year plan, like never before. And I, I sometimes wonder, without trying to politicise this discussion, I just wonder if maybe some Western nations might initiate a five-year plan if they had the discipline to do so. But the, the latest five-year plan does set out exactly what it says to do, a five-year plan. It tweaks it here and there uh, because of uh, prevailing market or economic or socioeconomic uh, conditions. But it's a, I think it's a good discipline, don't you? It is. And I have to say, and I'm stretching things a little here, but I do think that the uh, new phrase in Europe, uh, strategic autonomy, and the new phrase in the United States, build back better, to some extent, although they would never call them this, are... Um, multi-year plans um, as to how uh, those two blocks can see their way forward. The thing about China is that it's not just a five-year plan. They've actually got a 10-year plan and a 15-year plan. Hmm. So you know, the, the five-year is almost the short term. I mean, five-year in the West is not just long-term, it's very long-term. But for China, five-year has almost become short-term. And, and particularly because of, I should say, the experiences they had to stomach in the dying days of, of Donald Trump, they basically realized they had their Sputnik moment. They want to get uh, to be technologically independent. And that's exactly what they're going to do. And that's basically the, the, the sub-theme of the big plan that came out in October last year, which is for China 2035, which has a hit list of, of technological breakthroughs, et cetera, that they want to have achieved by then. The interesting thing is that they obviously had, and it's been floating around us all, but that you don't hear it used much these days, this Made in China 2025 program, which, of course, is now within the five-year plan. But they've dropped use of that. Uh, but quietly, what they're now saying is invented, designed, and made in China by 2030. And so uh, they basically upgraded it without announcing it. But the reality is now that they are their R&D expenditure, according to JP Morgan, has now overtaken that of the United States, um, and uh, there's hardly a field that's not important, that they're not pouring money and brains into. Um, and while I think they are obviously behind in things like the chip space at the moment, I really don't think they will be by, by, by 2035 and possibly even by 2030. Michael, your final paragraph says the following. So while China turns to focus somewhat inwards in the face of what it perceives as increasingly a hostile world, it should continue to become easier for international investors to access the abundant investment opportunities that China will offer in the year ahead and the decades beyond. And you're part of that at 91. Very much so. And, um, you know, they're following in the footsteps of a noble example. That was exactly what the United States did for 50 years after the Civil War, they focused on what was happening inside the United States and all the abundant investment opportunities that presented themselves. And foreign capital uh, flew to the United States uh, to try and uh, piggyback on that. 
they used this um, phrase, foreign entanglements, and they didn't like getting involved in things like the war with Spain in 1900 or various other incidents that happened along the way. They, generally speaking, wanted to keep to themselves. And I think that's what China does. The one exception, the big exception, the huge exception to all of this uh, is the, the One Belt, One Road or Belt and Road in Initiative, if you want to call it that, which is there, I believe, as a safety net for what happens when uh, later this decade China's demographics start to turn against it. Because the BRI essentially uh, opens up China into the rest of Asia and Africa, which just happened to be um, the best untapped, most demographically young markets on the planet. Uh, and so I always say with, with, with their BRI is that if your demographics give out on you, buy someone else's. And that's, I think, exactly what they are doing. So I think it's interesting to see how vaccine diplomacy is playing out and part and parcel of that. It's not directly linked to it, but you can't help but think that a country like the United Arab Emirates has basically gone for a Chinese vaccine. That's an extraordinary statement in and of itself. And so uh, I think that we are seeing um, China having a vision beyond that. And it's not so self-centered, so inward looking as not to recognize that the rest of the world um, has got a lot to offer, both in terms of the supply of raw materials and the like, um, but also, and increasingly importantly, in the uh, supply of consumption that is going to to essentially uh, dine on, on Chinese products. It's a fascinating juggling act between internal and external when it comes to China. Fascinating stuff. Michael, thank you very much. That was Michael Power, who is the strategist for the 91 Investment Institute.